You're listening to audio from Queen City Church. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message will encourage you and offer practical steps for a relationship with God that keeps getting better and better. This is the final week of our Summer Voices series, and this honestly is one of my highlights of the year. It is one of my favorite Sundays that we do every single year. We have called it over the years five by seven. And these five in-house communicators are, are going to be communicating for seven minutes each today. That's gonna be the message. And, um, and they've been working so hard over the last few months. I could not be more proud of the five people that are gonna be sharing today and the effort and the intentionality that they spent to hear God to be able to speak. But let me kind of set the framework of what we're gonna be talking about today because the theme for today is actually the characteristics of God. And we're getting it from this one scripture that is found in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 34, verse eight. And here's what it says. It says, and he, and by the way, he is talking about God. God himself, he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, what you need to know is that this is actually the most quoted verse of the Bible in the Bible. So out of all the verses that are quoted in the Bible, this is the one that is quoted most in the Bible. And it has to do with the characteristics of God. But I want you to notice something about that verse. I want you to notice that it's not a person that is describing the characteristics of God. It's God himself describing who he is. And God says, you wanna know who I am? In my own words, God says, I'm a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loving and faithful God. That's who I am. It's not just what I do, that is who I am. And today in our five by seven, these five communicators are going to be talking about each for seven minutes on one of those five characteristics of God. It's gonna be so awesome. I've already heard it once and I cannot wait to hear it again, but you have a role to play today because for, for some of the people, the only time they've ever done this was last service, okay? So I need you to be a awesome, supportive church. I need you to smile. I need you to laugh at every joke like it is the best joke in the whole wide world. I need you to lean in. But more than, and I can tell you their heart, they don't want you to just hear their words. What, what we've been praying for months is that you would hear God today. So we have a role to play in that. So I want you to lean in today. I want you to be the most encouraging church to them. I want you to smile and smile big. Let them see your teeth, like smile that big, like let them see and just help them feel like a million bucks because they've worked so hard to be able to do that. But before uh, we get with the very first communicator, let's take some time just to pray and let's just open up our life, our mind, our thoughts to be able to hear from God today. So God, we thank you for today. We thank you for bringing us here. And I believe that every single one of us are here for a very specific reason. And that's not just to hear messages, but it's to hear from you. And so God, right now we open up our entire life to you and we give you permission to speak into any area of our life. And God, we just ask that today that we would walk out of this place different than how we walked in. 
And God, I pray that, that we would be able to know you better as a result of the next 35 minutes. We thank you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Church, can you welcome our very first communicator, Mr. Brian Taylor, my friend. Hey, everyone. It's so great to be with you. Welcome to the Dave Ramsey Show, um, the old line. I'm actually BT. I'm a trustee here. And I'm going to move right past my introduction, though, because there's a much more important introduction that we get to bring, and that's the introduction of God himself. And it's my privilege to just be able to share with you first and foremost that God is compassionate. When I was invited to share, I knew I was a yes in my heart right away because the first small group that Melinda and I co-led here at Queen City was on this very passage in the book, God Has a Name by John Mark Comer, and I recommend it. Anyway, if you're here today, it's probably because you wanna know God more in some way, shape, or form. And it's super ironic to me that having sought to know God better my entire life, I discover 60 years into the journey that God actually introduces and even describes himself. Like seriously, like how did I miss that? I've read through the Bible and just whiffed on it. You know, there are some things you don't see and then you see it and then you can't unsee it, right? We all have those things. Something changes in the brain. A couple examples for me, uh, English major. I remember seeing that the word bed actually looks like a bed. And, and I know you love a bed. You're the 11 a.m. service. Um, and, and then another thing, being a little bit of a geography nerd, too, I remember seeing that the continent of Australia kind of has the shape of a dog's head. And not just any dog. We're talking Scooby-Doo, Right? And, and watch out Indonesia, I love it up there in the corner. You're looking like a Scooby snack, and that's not good. But I can't unsee Australia, and I can't unsee Exodus 34. I love this passage so much. Interestingly, God begins his description by telling us first that he's compassionate, which is often translated as merciful. Now, when God puts something first, it's for a reason, it's most important, right? Order matters in the scriptures, especially the Hebrew scriptures. The ancient world attributed immense value to this idea of first position. And so then why, you know, that great theological question, why does God want us to know first that he's compassionate? Really interesting. I think there are three reasons, and I'm sh there may be more, but first, he's different than all the other so-called gods, right? I mean, pick any god group you want, Phoenician, Babylonian, Sumerian, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, whatever, there's a bunch, right? But this god is different, but all those gods have one thing in common. They're angry at us, us chickens, mankind, right? <laughs> and so... Uh, mad as hornets these gods are, and they even demand onerous sacrifice, sometimes at the cost of human life. Such are the pagan gods, right? Our, our missions team to Guatemala went to a region where Mayans still worship the deity Mashimo, and our guide said that 
there are still occasional human sacrifices, even though the practice has been outlawed. The pagan gods of history, again, are monsters, but this God, our God, is compassionate. Second reason, God's compassion is paramount to sinners like me and us, right? I mean, we can be confident that God's amazing grace will always match our worst mistakes. And so when God is introducing himself through Moses, it's really to the children of Israel, right? And keep in mind, this group, he led them out of slavery, miraculously brought them through the Red Sea, drowned their captors, fed them, watered them in the desert, and they still complained like a bunch of Karens, right? I mean, man, we are high maintenance, aren't we, people? Thank God we don't get what we deserve. Oh, that is a Dave Ramsey saying. But our God is compassionate and praise him. Third, compassion is person-directed. You don't have compassion for things. You have it for beings. I'm passionate about coffee. I'm passionate about soccer. Go FCC Cincinnati. And, and FCC, Reds, Bengals, all looking strong. Hallelujah, Jesus must surely be coming, right? It's a great year to be a Cincinnatian. But the God we worship has immeasurable compassion, not just for us as a people, but for each of you. To really understand the depth of God's p- compassion, you have to go to the Hebrew word rahum. And interestingly, It has the same root word as female womb. And church, this is no coincidence. Perhaps the strongest sentiment that can slightly approximate God's love and compassion is that of a newborn mother or an expectant mother, right? There's another passage in the Bible where this idea of rahum is used. And and you know this story. It's 1 Kings 3. There are two women brought before King Solomon, both claiming to be the mother of a baby. And Solomon, in his wisdom, says, bring me a sword, split the baby in half, knowing that the true mother would speak up. And we know what happened. That's exactly what happened. This mother spoke out, relinquished her claim to motherhood. Interestingly, the Bible also tells us she was a prostitute. In her eyes, This may have been her only hope for dignity or self-worth. What Rahum, right? What compassion. So awesome. Closing, my piece of it, what does compassion look like in your life? Not to boast, but for years, Melinda and I and our young kids delivered free bags of groceries to our local church to needy families, and we pray with them as a family. And I'm so excited to see my kids stepping out in compassion now. And church, you rocked it on serve day. We are so proud of you. But I honestly feel like God is calling us to have a greater compassion for this city and make it a lifestyle, right? In Luke 19, 41, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And I feel like he feels the same way about the city of Cincinnati and the lost here. So can we compassionately love this queen city like King Jesus, right? I know we can because our God is compassionate. Thank you. Let's give it up for Dan Wirtz. It's only going to get better.
So good to be with you guys this morning. And if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, like BT said, my name is Daniel, and I have the honor of <clears throat> getting to serve here as our church's creative director. And again, we're just we're all excited to be here this morning, getting to unpack this scripture with you. And my assignment today is to talk us through the characteristic that God is gracious. God is gracious, or put another way, that God is grace, that he doesn't just have grace, or he doesn't just extend grace towards us, that he himself is grace. And before we get into any of that, um, I just want to acknowledge something that me and my wife have discovered, that I really believe there's two types of people in the world. Um, There are people that think and speak in sentences, and there are people that think and speak in paragraphs. And they always marry each other, which is super funny. But um, the the humor in all this is that the person in our marriage that thinks and speaks in paragraphs is supposed to have seven minutes to talk about grace with you. So it's going to be it's going to be an interesting ride. So, um, but really, this morning I just want to talk about two things with you. I want to unpack what is grace, and I want to unpack what does grace do. And so let's start with what grace is and. What I've come to believe is that grace is one of the most essential aspects of following Jesus. But on the other hand, I think grace is also one of the most misunderstood aspects of following Jesus. And I think a lot of us, when we come to think about grace, we see that through the lens of the forgiveness of sins, which is a massive part of that, and arguably the most massive part of that. But I think if that alone is your view on grace, then you've fallen short of what grace actually is. And so the question is, what is grace? And this is the best definition I could find about grace. It says, grace is the unearned and undeserved kindness and favor of God. And so a couple of things within that that I want us to take a look at. First is that grace is unearned and undeserved. I think one of the most foundational things that we could understand this morning about grace is that it is not something that we can earn. It is something that we only can receive. That Ephesians 2 verse 8, it says this. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. And what I believe this verse tells us is that grace, again, it's not a reward for good behavior. It is the goodness of God in action in our lives. And so another thing that we need to understand about grace is that grace is not something that we ever outgrow. And I think this is where a lot of the misconceptions can come in. And I think a lot of us, when we we think about grace again, it's just purely like, that's what allowed me to be a follower of Jesus in the first place. But it's so much more than that. And when I think about my own life, I need grace in every aspect of my life. I need grace in my relationship with God. I need grace in my marriage. I need grace in my career, that everything that I do in my life is on the other side of God's grace. And I think what's so essential for us to understand this morning is that we are both saved by grace and we are being saved by grace, that both of those things are working together in our lives. And so that's a little bit about what grace is. Now let's talk about what grace does. And honestly, this is where I could get into a lot of trouble and I see that timer ticking away. Um, And I could tell you all about 
what grace can do in your life. If I had time, I could tell you about how grace can free you from your past or how grace can empower you to live out the calling on your life or how grace can uproot things like pride and insecurity, anxiety, depression, you name it. But of all the things that grace has done in my life, the thing I kept coming back to the most was that grace has uprooted a performance mindset. And this is where I want us to take a look at that scripture. And so again, 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 12, it's going to be on the screen as well. So starting in verse 7, Paul says this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And... um, I grew up playing a lot of sports. I don't know if that's your upbringing, um, but I was always at a ball field somewhere growing up. And of all the sports that I played, um, the one that I kind of stuck to the most was football. And I'm not going to give you the like I could have gone pro story because I just wasn't that good. (laughs) Um, But I think back on those times and those were very foundational years for me. And I loved being on a team. I loved getting to play the game. Um, But on the flip side, I think a lot of the things that have negatively affected my life have been on a football field. And there was one time in particular, um, this was way back, we were uh, at practice one day and we're learning this new play that my coach was wanting to roll out. And I just like, I could not get it. It was just one of those days where it was like the lights are on, but no one was home. Like I just, I could not grasp what it is that I was supposed to be doing. And so I'm called in to run the play and I get the ball and I don't run it correctly. And then I tried another time, still don't run it correctly. I tried a third time and my coach is like locked in on me at this point. And he's just waiting for me to mess up and I don't run it correctly, and he lost his mind, y'all. Like, he threw his clipboard in the air, runs from across the practice field to me, and gets in my face, and in, like, the most PG way that I could put it this morning, he said that, uh, words, what is wrong with you? You'll never get this play right, and you will never amount to anything in life. Now, it's a very extreme response to a kid trying to learn how to play a game, right? Like, probably not fit for coaching if you're going to handle the situation that way. But I can't tell you how many times those words have run through my head. You'll never amount to anything. And I don't know why. I've heard way worse come my way. Um, But it was like those words stuck to my soul. And I've carried those words with me into so many different environments in my life. And even something like this can be very daunting because of, I don't want to mess up. And I think over time, it's really developed this like performance mindset within me. And I I tell you that story because in verse seven, 
Um, if we could put that back on the screen, Paul says that he had a thorn in his flesh or a messenger from Satan. And we don't know what exactly the thorn was. Many people have tried to understand, but the word messenger, it seems to suggest that it was something that was constantly being bombarded in Paul's thoughts. It was something that kept running through his head that he kept thinking about. And this has been the messenger of my life, have been those words. And so the question this morning is, what is your messenger? And specifically, if we could just take a step in my shoes, have you ever felt a need to perform spiritually? Have you ever felt a need to perform before God? And I think we can be in church and it's so easy for us to talk about things like discipleship and growing closer to Jesus. And it can be equated to like how much scripture I know or how theologically sound I can be or how long I can go without having sin in my life. But really at the end of the day, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we just making spiritual growth out to be another performance metric? That are we doing something that we could get in our corporate environment with God, because when I read this scripture, I see a completely different picture that Paul is trying to paint, because what I see is that following Jesus, it's not about performance, it is about dependence. That following Jesus is about how dependent we can be on God's grace in our lives, that this scripture says that God's power is made perfect in our weakness, not our independence. And how many times have we gone through life thinking, I need to perform before God, and we have missed the mark of grace. And so as we close, I want to read this passage again and read it out of the message version. And it says this, I was given the gifts of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angel did his best to get me down. What he in fact did was push me to my knees. No danger then of walking around high and mighty. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift, and I begged God to remove it. Three times I did that, and then he told me, my grace is enough. It is all that you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Listen, I don't know what your messenger is or what the thorn in your side is, but can I encourage you that the grace of God is sufficient for whatever your situation is this morning? that we don't have to feel like we're being pushed down, but we can feel like we're being pushed to our knees, that the sufficiency of grace can empower us for whatever it is that we have before us. And so the invitation this morning is to grace, because grace is the unearned and undeserved kindness and favor of God. Thank you, guys. Hey, everyone. Uh, super excited. Uh, to get to share with you today. And uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you before, uh, my name is Caleb, and I have the honor of being the care director here at church. But who's ready to talk about anger? Yeah, this, this is the fun one. And I know it may feel a little out of place, uh, but I promise that it's not. But today, I want to talk to you about the fact that God is slow to anger. God is slow to anger. So how many of you, by show of hands, have ever been around someone who's just angry all the time? They're just frustrated, they're impatient, and it feels like it's impossible to make them happy. It's like you're walking on eggshells around them, okay? Show of hands again, how many of you would say that you enjoy spending time with someone like that? 
Show of hands. Yeah, none of us. Exactly. Like We avoid people like that. But I think so often that's how we can view God. And maybe um, you don't believe that God is about to blow up at you in anger. But when you think of God, do you think of him as patient and kind? Or do you see him as always a little unhappy, a little frustrated, a little let down by you? Always wanting a little bit more, no matter how much that you do. And I know in a room like this, if I were to get the chance to go meet up with you, we had a one-on-one conversation and I asked you, do you serve an angry God? You would probably answer back to me like, well, no, of course not. But if we went just a little deeper and we got into the core of your heart and what you really believe, would that still be your answer? Or would your day in, day out life tell a different story? And I know that was me for years. You see, I grew up in church and a lot of my family was involved in church ministry. And really what that led to was church feeling like a whole lot of pressure. And then somewhere along the way, I picked up the story that I could only make God happy if I was perfect. And then if I wasn't perfect, God would be frustrated, disappointed, and angry at me. And I would have never said that out loud, but it's what I lived and what I believed for years and years and years. And you see, this description of God's character is slow to get angry. It matters so much because if we aren't convinced that it's true, we'll be limited in our ability to experience everything else that we talk about today. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the life of Peter to get an idea of what it actually means for God to be slow to anger. And if you don't know Peter, Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And within those 12, he was within Jesus' inner circle. And he traveled and he did everything with Jesus for three straight years. And if you want to, you can turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 59. It's where we're going to read at. Um, But before we read this verse, just a little context. So Jesus is about to be crucified and he's at the high priest's home and he's about to go before the council. And Peter has been um, watching everything from a distance. And before this, Peter has actually been forewarned by Jesus that he's going to deny Jesus three times to which Peter had responded like, not a chance. I'll die for you before I deny you. So we're going to pick up at Peter's third denial, starting in verse 59. It says, about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And then Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. Could you imagine being Peter in that moment? You've denied not only God, but you've denied one of your closest friends at their greatest time of need. The guilt, the shame, nothing is going how Peter planned it. And he knows that he's messed up before, but he's never messed up quite like this. Could you imagine being Jesus in that moment? Imagine that you're on trial and you know that you're innocent and one of your closest friends knows that you're innocent, but they choose to protect themselves and deny that they even know you. How would you react to that person if you got the chance to respond to them? Would one of the things that you would feel in that moment, do you think it would be anger? I know I would be so angry at that person. But if you know much about Peter, you know that isn't the end of his story. We actually get to see Jesus restore Peter in the book of John. 
So this is after Jesus has resurrected and Peter and Jesus are there around a fire eating and we see Jesus address Peter's denial in John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then skipping down a verse, we actually see Jesus end by inviting Peter to follow him again. And here we see a Jesus who isn't full of anger. He doesn't scold Peter. He doesn't give Peter the cold shoulder. We see that he responds with compassion, love, faithfulness beyond anything that Peter could imagine. Jesus doesn't ignore what Peter did. Jesus reminds Peter that in his failure, that Peter's love for Jesus is more important than anything else in Peter's life. And we see Jesus restores Peter's calling to lead his church and to ultimately follow Jesus again. And this is the picture of our God, a God who's slow to anger and always patient with us, a God who, if we're willing, always wants to pick us up and restore us. And you need to know that's not just how God is with Peter. That's just not how God is in the pages of Scripture. That's how God wants to be with us every single day and every single moment of our lives. And I think I can stand before you today and happily say I'm more convinced than ever that God really is patient and he really is slow to anger. But as I was prepping for this, I started thinking about, like, how did I get there? Like, what are all the things that have contributed to that? And there are so many But I think one of the biggest one is really simple. And it's just telling myself the truth. And and I know that can sound so cliche, but it works. Because truth that we meditate on moves from our head to our heart. And when it gets into our heart, it will change how we live. So something I do almost every single day is I pray and read through a list of truths that I need to hear and believe about God. And then I uh, pray and read through a list of truths that I need to uh, hear about myself. And on the God list is this line, and and I read and pray through it all the time, is that he is always patient and kind. And I can tell you that over time that has transformed how I think and how I believe, and it's transformed how I live and I relate to God. And so if you find yourself here today and you have a hard time believing certain things about God, if, if you're deep down, like, don't believe that he is patient and kind with you. First, can I tell you, God is patient and kind with you, not in a vague, far off way. He is patient and kind to you in your real life every single day. Second, I would encourage you not just to listen to me say that here, but like to leave here and put into practice, renewing your mind every single day and what you believe about God. And church, don't forget that God is slow to anger and he is always patient and kind with you. 
Wow, I'm so excited to be here today. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Valerie Griffith, and I serve as our Director of Finance, and I also help oversee all of our Queen City trips. So um, if you want to title what I'll be sharing, it's God is Love, so I get to focus on God's character of love. And I know that we've been reading out of our theme passage in Exodus 34, 6. So if you have your Bibles, let's dig deeper into it. I want to read it again. It says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, by show of hands, how many of you have ever loved somebody? Maybe it's a mom, a dad, family, a spouse, a child. I know I have. Uh, My husband and I, we have a three, almost four month old now, and man, she's pushed my love meter more than I thought I could ever have in my heart, and uh, I couldn't help but think and reflect just about what I know about love, and more importantly, how I've experienced the character of God's love, and one thing that kept resonating just as I prepared for today was that it was way easier for me to say, God, I love you, than it was to say, God, I believe that you love me, and I want to ask, you know, why? Because if I were to venture out to say, that's probably a lot of us in this room. And I I asked things like, God, is it maybe that I think I need to offer something to you? Or if it's when I've had a good week, when I've spent time in scripture, or that we've picked up what love looks like from relationships. Um, And biblically, biblically it tells us in 1 John 4, 8, that he is love, that God is love. So any conversation, any discussion about love first starts with God. You see, love is not just what he does. It's literally who he is. It is beyond just a feeling. It's an origin. And it's like if I were to say I am Latina, which I am, um, (laughs) I'm not describing simply what culture I practice. I am describing who I inherently am. Now, Don't get me wrong, I love celebrating other cultures. I love eating from other cultures. But I know that no matter how much pasta I eat or how much Italian music I listen to, at the end of the day, I will still be Latina. And in the same way, it doesn't matter how much scripture I read or how many services I go to, how many groups I attend, or how many serve days I serve at, it will not change the magnitude of how much God loves me. Because who God is is not dependent on what I do. Who God is does not change or waver based on whether I lean into him or I push him away. And thank goodness for that, because I mess up a lot. And I remember in 2014 when I had my first real glimpse that he is constant and he is faithful. Because from a young age, I actually felt called to ministry. I remember just wanting to share about the gospel in whatever way. And I, when I finally made it to ministry school, church, I bailed. I heard the lies of the enemy, that there was a life better outside from God. And I pursued a relationship with a guy that offered that life. I moved to one of the biggest party schools in Alabama. And then when he did not fill that void that only God can fill, I began to search for it in other ways. I found friendships that offered a life of drinking, a life of drugs, and a life of sex. And by the time that I I felt so dark, I didn't recognize myself. I remember feeling so much guilt and so much shame and so much embarrassment that I thought to myself, I cannot turn back to God. I am too far gone. And I want to take a pause because I feel like if you are feeling this way today, if you feel like you are far from God or you've messed up too many times, or better yet, if you're a parent praying for a child 
that is far from God, can I just say that he is a redeemer, that my life is a testament, that he's a redeemer, that he can make you pure again, that he can redeem things that the enemy tried to take away, that it is not done. Thank you. And also, I want to, in addition to that, just say, I think what kept me away from God, what pushed me away was that I had a misconstrued perception of who God was. And I strongly believe that who, how you view God will determine the relationship that you have with him because I viewed him that, that he was angry at me. I viewed him that as if he did not love me because I just, I wasn't pure. I wasn't holy. I, I wasn't where he had called me to be, but thank God for the local church because I took one service, and in one service, he reminded me that he has not left me, that he goes beyond my sin, and there was still a journey of healing, so don't get me wrong, I still needed to let go of habits, but church, in that moment, he wrapped me in his abundant love, and he reminded me that he is bigger than my mistakes, and that is true for you today. You see, by the time that I realized all of this, I I remembered that I was still, when I was still sinning, when I was still partying and drinking, he loved me, and he still had died for me. And in Lamentations, it puts his, the, the way he loves so beautifully. It says, God's loyal love couldn't have run out. His merciful love couldn't have dried up. They are created new every morning. How great is your faithfulness. I am sticking with God. I say it over and over. He is all that I've got left. So I want to boldly ask you today, do you believe that he loves you because of who he is no matter what you've done? Do you believe that um, he loves you abundantly and that if maybe there's any area in your life that you need to give to him because he is willing and he loves you abundantly? Um, And I also want to add and speak to you directly that God loves you no matter what you've done. God loves you no matter the mistakes that you've done. God loves you whether you lean into him or not. He loves you because love is who he is. It's not just what he does. So church, I thank you for today. And that's all I had. So I'm going to pass it over to Jared. All right. What's good, church? Good morning. Good morning. If we have not met yet, my name is Jared. I get the privilege of overseeing youth and young adults here at Queen City. Today, I'll be talking about how God is abounding in faithfulness. And about halfway through the study and preparation for this, I started realizing, I was like, this seems so familiar. And I remember this time last year, I got the privilege of doing the 557 for a message, a short message entitled, Jesus is Faithful. So this is round two. So you're speaking, you're listening to an expert, right? It's just not the case at all. (laughs) Because I've learned, and as you get older, as you grow in faith, so if you're new to this thing, man, grace, as we just talked about, it is a journey and it's never going to be a sprint. If you think you're sprinting, you're going, to get to, you're going to get to the end point, you're going to have it all figured out, you're going to play yourself, and you're going to be looking sad, right? These things we're talking about, as awesome as they are, they can't just be digested in seven minutes, but it's the journey of faith that we get to go on. And there's hope. In Romans 5, 5, Paul says it like this, that hope doesn't put us to shame or disappoint. So I think sometimes, man, you get excited for things. If you're like me, you might feel like some of the things as a kid got robbed too quick, But as an adult with Jesus, I'm telling you, you can have hope because it doesn't come back void and doesn't disappoint, right? We just need faith. And luckily, God is the embodiment of what it means to be faithful, full of faith. Paul, we talk about this at Youth and YA before we listen to anyone speak. And I just want to challenge you with the same thing. Paul in Corinthians says that knowledge puffs us up. But he then goes to say that love builds us up. So I just challenge you as you listen and as you digest what you've heard, will you receive it in love? and not anger, as Caleb talked about. 
So what exactly is faith? The dictionary says faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Hebrews 11.1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Eugene Peterson says faith is long obedience in the same direction. Faithfulness as a word in the Hebrew language is a word called emet, which would translate to truth literally today. It's like when someone's saying something really good or you're praying, you start saying amen. It's when something that is true resonates deeply inside of you. So God is saying, yo, I'm trustworthy, which is synonymous with reliability. God himself is saying, hey, you can trust me. I will not let you down which is a hard reality that a lot of times there's not many people or things, or sometimes we can't even trust ourselves these days. But God himself has told us exactly who he is. If you go back to Hebrews 11.1, 1, the conviction or assurance, if you read NIV, or, or evidence in the NLT of things we cannot see. In my own life, I take it a, just a little step further and say things I may not feel yet. Faith in a society of instant gratification is really, really hard. Walking in faith while you're still healing from something is still going to hurt, but we can no longer continue to put God in this box that he didn't put himself in, but that we built for him and start calling him out of his name and saying that he is unfaithful. Because here's our current reality, y'all. Life gets hard. How often do we choose just to evacuate and do something different? When we aren't having fun anymore, or we're not seeing the growth quick enough, the status of the platform or the promotion that we're desiring doesn't seem like it's in reach, we just go on to something else and take on something new. But that isn't how faith works. We live in a world where it's so easy to be back and forth and flaky, which makes things like faith that much harder, but we must have hope. And hope's one of those words, I mean, I've been following Jesus for almost a decade, but it's one of those things like I never really questioned it. I just see it in, stamped in the wood in people's houses or in mugs at the store, right? So I've been on this journey of like, how can I articulate hope, not just for myself, but to someone else? And I would say it like this. Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good based on the character of God. The absolute expectation of coming good based not on what you may see or feel in the moment, but knowing the character of God. No matter what we feel, how stressed you may, out, even, may even be today, it's peace at night knowing that this life on earth isn't the best life you'll live. And we read John 10, 10, we say it a lot, that the life and life of the fool, even if it's not on earth right now, it's on the other side of heaven. That this is not the best it's going to be, that God will restore everything to the way that it should be at the right time. And for some of you, man, you're riding high, you're like, man, life is great. You can nod along and say, man, I'm full of faith this morning. But if you're like me, this year, this month, this week may have been really challenging for you. And you feel like you're caught in this uphill battle that's never going to end. But Jesus addressed this himself. He says, in this world, you will have many troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This answers the question, it's just like, yo, but why do bad things happen? Why can't I feel it? Why don't I see it? Take heart. Jesus, the character of God, has overcome the world. This year, right, the expert, right, I've had to wrestle with this more than ever. You get unexpected phone calls from friends back home, right? They're like, man, so-and-so passed away. That's not good news. I've had to deal with family and people I love so dearly get diagnosed with cancer that and they, doctors don't even know what's going on. That is annoying. It feels unfair. But does that change who God is? And that's the hard question I have to ask myself every single day in the mirror. 
Does the news that I've ever gotten, does this change who God is or am I putting him back in the box that I made? And the answer is no. That absolutely does not change who God is because I'm convinced now more than ever that no matter what bad news I may receive, nothing can trump the good news of Christ Jesus. And that is the same thing that he wants for you as well. It doesn't change anything you as Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even though we at times may be flaky or we may not be trustworthy or we may be unfaithful, God in the ultimate act of kindness and faithfulness sent his son to die for us just for the hope and the small chance that you might say yes. Sometimes things go wrong, but if we look to the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see that God is bigger than evil and stronger than death. The empty tomb that we celebrate at Easter, which let me challenge you, you can celebrate that every single day. It's the power of God at work and the purpose that God himself will make all things beautiful again and restore them at the right time. And God's promises aren't this cookie cutter mold that you need to button yourself up to fit in, but they have you uniquely and individually in mind because that's how he made you. So here's my challenge to you, church. On this faith journey, not your faith sprint, whether you're a seasoned veteran or you're about to say yes to Jesus for the first time ever, will you not give up? Galatians 6, 9 says this, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. And why is that? Because faithfulness is long obedience in the same direction, especially in an age of instant gratification. And ask yourself this, where has God called me to be faithful? And I challenge you, when you think about that, without hesitation, write down the first thing that comes to your mind. Is it at home? Is it at work? Is it at school? Is it at our church? Is it your relationships or even all of the above? And my follow-up question to that is, will you stay? Will you not be like the world may be and be flaky, but will you trust the character of God? And when he brings you into an area or environment, even though you may not see or feel what he's doing, will you plant yourself down? And now imagine this, this is the fun part. If we're believing in hope, the absolute expectation of coming good based on the character of God, if you plant yourself faithfully as God has loved and served and cared for you faithfully, what could be true a week from now, a month from now, years from now, where could you be then? Where could you be at in your faith walk then if you stay? Will you church, can I, I'm included in this. Can we be faithful like the God that we get to worship who desperately desires a relationship with you? And I think after hearing all these awesome people talk, this deserves a type of response. So if you would, would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? And just take a deep breath while you're there. <laughs> and would you just simply ask God, what are you speaking to me right now? What does my response need to be? Did it, I think this is a day that absolutely should affect how we move and throughout our week. If you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, if you've never received the free gift of grace, if you've made that decision before, or you feel like you've, something's changed, you're not following God, or you feel far apart, far apart from him, before we go, we just want to give you the opportunity to make the absolutely most important decision of your life, and that's to follow Jesus whether that's the first time or all over again. 
We're not gonna point you out or make you stand up or come forward or embarrass you in any way. I'm just gonna lead a simple prayer. And if you want to be included in that prayer, would you just raise your hand with no hesitation on the count of three? One, two, three. Praise God, I got you. Let's pray together, y'all. Pray this in your heart. Jesus, I need you. I'm sorry I've lived my life without you. Come live inside me, come change me, come make me brand new. I surrender my entire life to you. Jesus, today I receive your grace and I choose to follow you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. If there's anything in your life that we can pray for, please visit queencitypeople.com prayer. For the latest updates on our church, follow us on social media at queencitypeople or visit queencitypeople.com.